and we're glad to see you here at Freedom today. And let me welcome in those of you who are joining us online. We're always glad to have you be a part of Freedom Online. Thank you for doing that. Uh, I'm glad especially that you're here today because I love for you to be able to get in on the beginning of a new series, and we're starting in a new series today uh, that is entitled uh, Paradise Lost and Found. And by that, we don't mean the lost and found closet of paradise. We mean uh, the paradise that God intended for us that we see reflected in Eden that was indeed lost for us that is going to be restored at the end of time. A wise person taught me a long time ago, if you ever want to truly understand a good book or a story or a movie or most importantly the Bible, you better not miss the very beginning or the very end. And they pointed out, if you want to understand the Bible, you better dig deeply into the first three chapters of Genesis and the last three chapters of Revelation. Because everything in between doesn't make a lot of sense unless you understand those bookends. And that's exactly what we're going to press into over the next six weeks is the very beginning of the story and the very end of the story. Now, uh, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. And I need to begin with a disclaimer today. What I'm going to do today, if, for those of you who've been around for a while, you'll realize very quickly, is very different from what you normally hear me do on a Sunday morning. Uh, it, I'm going to today, rather than preach, I'm going to be teaching an apologetic. And I know that's not a term that we throw around in our culture very much today. We don't do a lot of apologetics. But when we say apologetics, we simply mean a defense of the faith giving a reasoned explanation for why we believe what we believe. When we talk about Christian apologetics, we're explaining why we believe that God exists and that Jesus Christ is His only Son and that He died for our sins and rose from the dead. Why we have reason to, to actually believe those things. What I'm going to do to not general Christian apologetics, I'm going to do a creation apologetic, which is going to sound very different from what you're accustomed to. And I'm, just, I'm going to go ahead and say, because this is the truth, some of you are going to love it and some of you are going to hate it. For those of you who love it, the good news is you can go back to it anytime you want to online. For those of you who hate it, hang with me. We'll return to our regularly scheduled program this time next Sunday. And we'll get back into what will sound like a more normal series. I feel like what we're going to talk about today is very important and requires a different type of handling. And I'm going to explain why as we move along. It's because we live in a culture which is so attacking this fundamental part of what we believe. Now, having said that, there's one other disclaimer that I need to make. There are essentials in our faith, and we just sang about them in the next to last song in the Creed. They are summed up in the Apostles' Creed, and we just sang a good summary of, of the Creed. And on those things, we must agree. We must agree that there is one God and that He is always Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We must agree that Jesus Christ is His only begotten Son, that, that He lived a sinless life, that He died for our sins, that He rose from the dead, and that through faith in Him and Him alone can we be saved and made right with God. All of those are non-negotiables. We must agree on those things or we don't really have a Christian fellowship. You have to believe those things to be Christian. I am today going to step beyond that circle of the non-negotiables. I'm going to talk about something that's important, but it is something that you, you have to hear me say this. We can disagree on some of the t details that I'm going to talk about today and still be in fellowship. It's important that you remember that because some of you are going to land at a different place. And I need you to know, first of all, I'm not going to love you less or respect you less because you land at a different place if you do. 
There are people who are intelligent and who love Jesus and who love His Word who don't believe things exactly as what I'm going to present to you today, and they are still my brothers and sisters, and I still respect them. So it's important that you hear me say that. Having said that, I believe that what I'm going to share with you today is on the money and that it matters, and that's why I'm taking the time to give this to you. But I need for you to have heard me say clearly, if you don't agree, that's okay. There are a lot of things we've got to agree on. We don't have to agree on everything that I'm going to share with you today, and, and that's all right. Fair enough? All right, let's press in. Genesis 1, verse 1. I think the opening five verses of Genesis are among the most profound and beautiful in all of Scripture. In the beginning, God created. We could stop right there, and I'll guarantee you we could spend a long time on those opening words. Before anything was, God, the uncreated one, has eternally existed, and He is, above all things, the first thing He reveals he is creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, some scholars point out that the words for the heavens and the earth can be used in a more general sense to mean literally space and matter. Eretz, earth in Hebrew, can mean just matter. So it's an interesting opening five verses. God creates the heavens and the earth. God creates all of space and all matter. Verse 2, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And in a moment of time, every wavelength of light from the far end of infrared to the far end of ultraviolet and everything in the, in the spectrum in between is spoken into existence. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And then there was an evening, and there was a morning one day. In five verses, we have a description of God creating space, matter, energy, and time. This is essentially the building blocks of everything that we know in our temporal existence. Space, matter, energy, and time. God has now spoken those things into existence in day one. Verse 6. Then God said, Let there be an expanse between the waters separating water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse sky. Evening came and then morning the second day. If what you just heard described sounds confusing or unfamiliar, <clears throat> there's a good reason for it. It's most likely that what's being described is something that we've never seen. It's something that hasn't existed since the flood. It sounds like a description of a water canopy surrounding the earth. There's, there's water, as we know it, on the surface of the earth, but there appears to have been a canopy of water <clears throat> excuse me, above the earth, which would have provided protection from UV rays and would have created a greenhouse effect on the earth. It would have been a, an even more lush place than what we know of. Moving on to verse 9 and day 3. Then God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the water he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, Let the earth produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And it was so. 
the earth produced vegetation, seed-bearing plants according to their kinds, and the trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Evening came, and then morning, the third day. Let's pause for just a second. What did we get on day three? This is important. What did you get on day three? This is audience participation time. All the plant life that you see on lands. Very interesting. Does anybody notice anything missing in the story so far? We've got land. Well, well yeah, yeah, animals are missing. But something, thank you, John. Something seems, thank you, seems on the surface of it, maybe a little bit out of order. What do plants need? There hasn't been a sun made yet. We're in day three. All the plants have been made, but there is no sun yet. Just hold that thought in the back of your mind. Verse 14. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. They will serve as signs for seasons and for days and years, and they will be lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night, as well as the stars. So in the fourth day, God makes the sun and the moon the greater and the lesser lights. And I love this. And as a little aside, five words say, oh, and by the way, God made the stars. Billions of galaxies, each containing billions of stars, and God threw them in on the side. This is the fries to go with your burger. This is the, the extra thing that, that God has thrown in. <clears throat> Verse 17. God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth, to rule over the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness, and God saw that it was good. Evening came, and then morning the fourth day. And then God said, Let the waters swarm with living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the large sea creatures and every living creature that moves and swarms in the water according to their kinds. He also created every winged creature according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the waters of the seas. And let the birds multiply on the earth. Evening came and then morning the fifth day. What did we get on day five? Everything in the ocean... And everything in what other space? All of the birds. Therein is another significant problem or, or curious point. Birds, if you believe in evolutionary theory, don't come until way after land animals, and we don't have any land animals yet in creation. Move on to verse 24. Then God said, Let the earth produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that crawl, and wildlife of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. So God made the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that crawl on the ground according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. But he's not done with day six. He's created all of the living creatures on land except for the most important one, the ones that will be made in his image. And then God said, let us, an interesting statement, you hear the plurality of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all involved in creation. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God, and he created them male and female. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. And God also said, Look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth, 
and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it. I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. That's the first time that he says that. Evening came and morning, the sixth day. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed, and on the seventh day God completed his own work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his work of creation. Now I've got a lot I'm going to share with you, so I'm going to move really quickly, and that's why I've given you a lot of, of more detail in your notes, and if you want to do any Q&A afterwards, we can, because I know I'm going to spit out a lot to you. But I want to just share with you uh, just three broad statements from what we read in the creation account, and then I want to just press into some, some detailed issues. The first point that I want to make is this. God could have given us a vague creation timeline, a vague description of how he created the world, but he didn't. He gives us a rather detailed account, and in fact, in Genesis 2, he goes back and retells Genesis with a, a different perspective. It's the same story, but with a different focus. And in this account, he gives us all manner of details. He could have, if he wanted to, he could have simply said, the all-creative, all-powerful God formed everything that exists, large and small, in ways that are beyond your comprehension. Now let's move on. But he didn't. He gave a very specific, specific and detailed timeline of the way in which he created the world. And we'll just stop at that point and move to the next related point, which is this. That is that the Genesis creation account does not correlate with the, the theories of the Big Bang or of macroevolution. When I say macroevolution, it's simply an acknowledgement of the fact that, yes, on a, on a microevolutionary level, that things change. And we see minor changes within species depending on what's going on in the environment. But when we talk about macroevolution, we're talking about evolutionary theory, which says all living things evolve from one point and from one original organism. And one species and one genus mutates into another genus, another species. And what I would say to you today is that the Genesis 1 account absolutely does not correlate with the Big Bang Theory nor with evolutionary theory, which we've taken the word theory out of talking about evolution, and that's a bad mistake. And let, let me just say this on the front end. I love science. I think you'll hear that in, in what I share today. I love science. Let's be clear on what science is and what science is not. Science is about what we can observe, what we can measure, and what we can test. Those are good things for us to do. It's good for us to observe what we can in nature and in the universe. John opened worship today with a reading from Psalm 19 about how the heavens declare the glory of God. I love science because it helps us to better understand a creation that reflects the power, the wisdom, and the creativity of its creator. Good science does that. Accurate science does that. But let me tell you what science is not allowed to do. And it's no longer science when it does these things. And that is to dream up theories that cannot be measured, test, tested, nor proven, and then call it science. 
you've now moved into the realm of either philosophy or religion when you do that. Philosophy and religion are good things, but you've got to call them what they are. You can philosophize anything that you want to. You can dream up any idea and call yourself a philosopher and just espouse all the bright ideas that you've got. Good luck finding a job if that's what you want to do for a living. But you can do philosophy all that you want to, but call it what it is. Call it religion or call it philosophy. Don't call it science if you can't watch it, if you can't measure it, and if you can't test it. And we now have textbooks that are jam-packed with material that isn't based on science. There are theories about things that we know for a fact nobody other than God himself was around to witness. So it couldn't have been observed. And we can't actually carefully test these things. Now, I want to briefly unpack part of why I say what we read in Genesis 1, not correlating with the ideas of either evolution or the Big Bang in, in kind of broad terms, and then we'll move on to some more specific things. But ju just to be clear about what, and, and there's not, I don't have a good term for this. We're simply going to refer to it as secular science, and I don't like calling it that because, for one, there are quite a number of secular scientists who are coming to conclusions that don't line up with what I'm about to call secular science. There are plenty of really smart secular scientists who are, at, at the very least, landing at a place of intelligent design. They are saying, none of these theories work. None of these theories hold water. There has to have been a powerful, intelligent designer behind the universe because we keep running into walls of things that we cannot explain, that defy all of logic and science, and so we cannot put them in categories we just have to say there was a powerful intelligent designer and there are plenty of secular people who are not christians who say that so that's why i'm saying i don't like calling it secular science because one it's not science and, and two not all the people who are secular land there but i don't have a better term for it so you get what i'm saying when i say secular science says it's it's a particular camp and it is the majority camp right now and they have all of the press right now it's kind of funny. In the world of politics and media today, and I don't care where you land on this. I'm not, I'm not waxing eloquent on one end or the other about this. But you get it that presently, if politically you're to the left, you like most media except for Fox News. Because the left, that perspective dominates the media today. And whether you love or hate Fox, they represent the right primarily. So... You know, overwhelmingly, you're going to listen to mass media, you're going to hear a, a leftist perspective. Well, let me tell you, in the world of science, there's a similar kind of situation. It's not... The media is a good reminder for us when we look at how that works. It is not that the whole world has a, has a leftist perspective. It is just that most of the media does. Well, in the world of science... Those who dominate the media and those who dominate the writing of textbooks, they come from a secular science perspective that is just a perspective. But right now, it's sort of like the leftist perspective in politics. It is the one you're going to hear. It is the one you're going to hear all the time. If you are in a, a secular classroom in America, this is the perspective you're going to hear all the time. That's why I'm talking about this today. That's why we're going to take time on a Sunday morning to talk through these things because it's what people are hearing all of the time. And the secular perspective is that, first of all, the universe is about 14 billion years old. 13.81, but what's, you know, 190 million years among friends. 14 billion year old universe, and that the earth is 4,540 something million 
years old. So 14 billion for the universe, 4.5 billion years for the earth, and that humans as a genus have been on the earth for a few million years. And you know what the, I mean, we've all lived in this culture long enough, we all know what the the basic storyline is. That once, you know, the Big Bang happened and everything began to expand from the center of the universe and all of this uh, matter and energy began to to spin and galaxies spun out of that and, and planetary systems around individual stars spun out of that. And that for, in our solar system here in the Milky Way galaxy, that on the Earth, four and a half billion years ago, you know, a planet forms and begins to solidify, solidify and conditions are right so that we have liquid water and that in that lipids rising to the surface of this ooze somehow over time evolve into the most basic single cell organisms. Now, here's one of the things that you just need to know about the way this works in science. Part of this pseudoscience, it involves magic. It absolutely does. And there are magical words. You know how when you go see a magician, what are the magic words that they use? Abracadabra, hocus pocus. Do you know what the magic words are in pseudoscience today? Here are the magic words. Over millions and millions of years. Those are the magic words. And Do you know why I say that? Because when science runs into something that it absolutely cannot explain, it cannot test, it cannot measure, and it cannot reproduce, it has no explanation for, and so in the absence of any explanation, they just go, well, over millions and millions of years, it just happened. What are you saying just happened? Life came from lifelessness. Whoa, what? What? What are you saying? Well, it, it just happened over millions of years. What are you talking about? Life came from lifelessness? We can't recreate that. And with all of our technology, we cannot form the simplest single-cell organism in any lab on the planet. And you're just saying, but given enough time, ooh, hocus-pocus, millions and millions of years, ah, here's living tissue, here's a living single-cell organism. It doesn't happen. It is the magic of pseudoscience. And, of course, you know the rest of the theory. Well, single-cell organisms evolved and they became more complex. And eventually we had walking catfish and then we had living creatures on the, on the earth. And eventually birds evolved from this. And this is our whole theory. And, and we understand why people laughed at that for decades. But somehow enough time has passed and we've started buying it as if it were real science. And it's not. It's not. There are so many laws of the universe that you have to defy in order to come to this. First of all, the Big Bang defies the first law of thermodynamics. The total amount of mass and energy in any system and in the universe is unchanging. And yet for the Big Bang to exist, we go from virtually nothing to everything that is, and that. I know that's, that's a particularly technical thing that we wouldn't worry about, but I want to tell you, if you're a scientist, you worry a lot about that. But more importantly, nothing in the universe evolves toward order. You have to completely defy the second law of thermodynamics. And I know you didn't come for a lesson on thermodynamics, but you're going to get a short one today. The second law of thermodynamics st says that in any closed system, entropy always increases over time. Entr entropy is simply something that is organized moving toward towards disorganization and everybody who's alive knows the second law of thermodynamics 
If you don't exert any energy over your home without trying to, your house as a closed system moves towards disorder, right? It does. You don't have to even live in it. If you left your house for a year and came back, would you find that it was cleaner than when you left it? How often would that be the case? Never. It would have dust and cobwebs and stuff. If you left it for a hundred years and came back, would you find more order? No, you'd find things are falling apart and they're decaying. If you left it for a thousand years, you'd find absolute chaos because everything in the universe, every closed system, given time, migrates from order to disorder. It's one of the fundamental laws of the universe. It's why if I had up here in, in my hands a container with a million BBs and I dumped them out, no matter how many times I did that, they would never spontaneously evolve and move into the Eiffel Tower. We could just do it again and again and again. It would never happen because we know as a law of the universe, everything moves from order to disorder. If I remove the order of, of a, a bowl or a container that is forcing order for those BBs and I dump them out, they will never move toward greater order. Everything in the universe naturally moves toward disorder. And yet evolutionary theory demands that in every instance the second law of thermodynamics be violated and that disorder move toward higher order and it never happens in the universe. Find any system, find any example that we can observe, not in pseudoscience, not in some textbook where we say, but I saw the pictures. There was caveman and then there was kind of caveman and then there was thinking man. I saw him in my textbook. Show me the pictures. They don't exist. What you have are drawings. You do a little scratching around and, and rooting around behind the drawings. It's a farce. It's a paper tiger. I mean, all of these examples. Well, well, we know how man has evolved because we've got all of these pictures. No, we don't. We know woolly mammoths existed and they're now extinct. And we can show you pictures of woolly mammoths because they're frozen in the ice. And we can say, not just here's a drawing of a woolly mammoth, here's what he looked like. He looked like a big, bad elephant. This is a creature that existed. And yet we have all of these drawings of all these missing links in the evolution of man that don't exist. I'll give you a great example. You're not going to hear this one in your science class. Ever heard of Nebraska man? You know how they give a different title to each of the, you know, this man and that man in all the different pictures of the evolution of mankind? Nebraska man used to be in your textbooks. He's not in the new ones. You know why? Because he was a hoax. Here's part of what they seldom tell you. These pictures of people are usually based on like a single little bone. You know what Nebraska man was? He was one tooth. A tooth. And we have a whole picture in the evolutionary order of here's one of the missing links that we've been looking for. It's Nebraska man. He's this many million years old. You know what they found out after years of touting this tooth as we built an entire model off of the tooth? You know what they finally discovered after time? The tooth didn't belong to a man. It belonged to a pig, a pig that lived in the 20th century. And that tooth got soaked in iron salts, which corrupted the carbon-14 dating on it. And the entire model that they built of a man was built off of a pig's tooth soaked in iron salts. It was a few years old and it was dated as millions of years old based on science of the day. Do you begin to feel the, the earth moving beneath your feet as, as we're being sold a bill of goods? We're being told things are fact that defy the basic laws of the universe. 
There are things that we do observe. This is science. I mean, let me just throw out one more example of something that is science, and yet scientists aren't explaining it for us. If the Big Bang actually happened, then everything that spins up in the universe would spin in particular directions. A galaxy spins in a particular direction. Solar systems spin in a particular direction. Moons orbiting planets have to spin in a particular direction in line with their orbit. If they spun off, as the Big Bang Theory suggests, you understand that there would be predictable order to that. Nothing could violate that order. You, you, you get how this works. If, if I were a, a planet... And I'm spinning around, and I, I'm so early in my formation, I'm just, I'm just a hot mass. Not a hot mess, but a hot mass. And, and, and I'm still in liquid form, and I'm slinging off material as I spin around. This, the material that slings off from me is going to spin the same direction that I'm spinning, right? Can't, it can't orbit me in the opposite direction, so everything's got to... If I'm spinning clockwise or counterclockwise, it's all got to do that with me. And as it spins off, it's, it's rotation has to spin in line with that. You can't spin in this direction and then counter-rotate. So everything's got to go in the same direction. Okay, explain this one for me. We observe planetary systems outside of our solar system where planets and moons rotate in the opposite direction of what they would be allowed to rotate if they spun into place. Do you follow me? Science cannot explain that. It is impossible for these things to rotate in the opposite direction from what their orbit would dictate they have to turn. They can't spin in that direction. Nothing would explain that except an intelligent designer who put those things in place and said, I'm just going to have fun with this. I'm going to let this one rotate the opposite direction of what it's supposed to. And I mean, there are attempts to say, well, maybe an asteroid collided with it and reversed its rotation. Are you kidding me? Do, do you think for a minute that you could reverse the rotation of a planet by an asteroid? You would blow that planet to smithereens. If it, I mean, you can't explain it. And yet, we treat the Big Bang as if it were a fact. We treat macroevolution as if it were a fact. And part of what we have to realize in this is that these versions of the story do not line up with the Genesis account. Now, two things people will do primarily with the Genesis 1 account to try and find a way to mesh these things together. The first one is called the gap theory. The gap theory basically says Genesis 1-1 happened. God created the heavens and the earth. Stop. Insert 14 billion years. Now resume the story and God made all these things on the earth. If you don't think about it for more than about five seconds, that sounds good. Like, okay, we get an old universe. Maybe it's all okay. We can make science and, and the Bible all line up. The problem is it's not what the Bible communicates, and it still doesn't work. If you, I mean, you have to just disbelieve the Genesis 1 account. Stars don't create it, get created until day four. If you read about everything that happens in days 2 through 7, a gap theory doesn't explain anything other than an old universe. You still have to disbelieve the Genesis 1 account. And as for evolutionary theory, well, already as we read the account, you saw that those things don't line up. Now, again, people who are trying to reconcile the Bible to this, the, the primary second task that they'll undertake is to blow up the idea of a day, of a day as we know a day. Each day of creation will say, and there was morning and there was evening the first day, the second day, the third day. 
And people will say, well, you know, the word day can mean a lot of different things. I mean, you, you can say day in a way that you're speaking about a, a, a general amount of time. You can say, you know, back in my day, we didn't have these newfangled things. You don't mean a specific day. You mean an era of time. Back in the day. And that's true. It's actually, a lot of times things don't carry over from one language to the other. But that's actually true for the Hebrew word yom, which translated as day. You can use that word to mean a general, unspecified period of time. But here's the kicker. Never in biblical writings or in any other form of ancient Hebrew, secular or biblical, is there ever a use of the word yom with a numerical adjective attached where it means anything other than a 24-hour period of time, period. Now, that, that's a long head way of saying this. If you put a number... In English, if you put a number in front of the word day, we don't have any confusion about whether you're talking about a general period of time or 24 hours. If I say to you, I'm leaving today and I'm going on a five-day vacation, you know I'm coming back Friday. You're not going, well, I wonder if he's going to be gone 50 million years. Because, I mean, five days, you know, day can mean a lot of different things. Not if you put a number in front of it. A hundred percent of the time. If I put a number in front of it, you know I'm talking about 24-hour periods. And the same is true of Hebrew 100% of the time. Not one example in ancient Hebrew writings of any kind can you put a number in front of that word and it mean anything other than 24 hours. Now, I get it. The argument that people make is, well, it doesn't make any sense. The sun and moon hadn't even been created. So how can there be a 24-hour day? Do you not grasp? God is creating time. Now, God could have made time any way that he wanted to. He could have made the units of time that become the circular thing that we repeat over and over and over in our lifetime. He could have made it a 1,000 years. He could have made it 50 years. He could have made it five minutes. He made it what we count as 24 hours. And he wasn't depending on the sun in order to create. I mean, God is creating order, and time becomes one of the frameworks for him to create order in, and he makes what we know of as a day, a 24-hour span, that piece of, of order for us. And it doesn't need there to be a, a moon, I mean a sun, to rise and set in order to define, I'm giving mankind the gift of time and order within time, and he doesn't need the sun to rise and set in order to create that. And if there's any doubt left as to whether he's talking about literal days he clears, the writer clears this up with two very specific things. First of all, on every single example, so that we don't misunderstand this and misconstrue it as gigantic periods of time, he says, and there was evening and there was morning the second day, the third day. And he, he never leaves that out. It's like, we're kind of getting tired of you saying that. We get it. There was evening, there was morning. It was, it was another day past. He's making it so you can't miss this. And in case we somehow want to argue ourselves into it, he says, let me throw this in. On day three, he made everything that's green, everything that blooms, everything that bears fruit. He made all that, and he decided he's going to hold off on making the sun until the next day, just to make the point. How are you going to squeeze several million years in between the making of every plant and the making of the sun that feeds all those plants? It doesn't work. Are we at least in agreement on that? You don't have to buy everything that I'm saying, but here's what I am telling you. You can't logically get to a place of saying, it all just matches up. The Big Bang, evolution, Genesis, it's all the same thing. No, it's not. Th these are different accounts, very different accounts that don't line up. Now I'm going to have to kick it in a higher gear, so get ready. A great deal of the evidence that we observe in the world around us points to a young age for the earth 
And when we talk about this, people look at us like we've got horns coming out of our heads. I know this. I can't think of anything in the Bible that I have spent more decades studying than what we're talking about today. Partly because I am a person of math and science. And I'm curious to see how these things line up. And I have come to the conclusion from everything that I have observed that there is more in nature that points to a young age, I mean a very young age for the earth, than an old age for the earth. And I'm going to just give you a few of these randomly. I'm going to give them fast, and I apologize if I run through these too quickly. Let me give you just several. The first one's from, from math more than science. The population of the planet and its growth rate rules out the possibility of human beings being here for millions of years. And if you ever have to have a conversation with somebody about how long we've been here, if you don't remember anything else I say today, you remember this point. We know that there were a billion people on the earth for the first time in 1810, thereabouts. First time the population hit a billion. And we know there's a little over seven and a quarter billion here today. So we, we know what the, the growth rate of the population has been. It doubles about, in, in modern times, it doubles about every 70 to 80 years. If we extrapolate backwards from that and we say, all right, modern medicine have impacted things and the, the population grows faster now, but you also have to factor in birth control. Modern birth control dumbs that down. But if we say, all right, in the, in the long span of history, the absence of modern medicine even though they were having babies like crazy in ancient times. But we say, okay, the, let's cut that in half. Let's cut the growth rate of the population in half and say it only doubles every 150 years. It's a very conservative number. We'll say the population doubled every 150 years. I'll hold that thought for just a second because I just remembered I skipped one thing. In the biblical narrative, if we just take it at face value and you count it out, it appears using the generational tables and all they're given, that the earth would be a little over 6,000 years old. Now I have people looking at me like I'm insane. I absolutely believe that the earth is a little, little over 6,000 years old. And a key piece in this story is that 1,650 years into the Genesis account, there's a worldwide flood that reshapes pretty much everything on the planet. So there's a worldwide flood for a little over 4,350 years ago. If you believe the biblical account, you believe the Genesis account, there were eight people on the earth 4,350 years ago. If we say that the population of the planet has doubled every 150 years for 4,350 years, anybody want to guess what the population would be today? It would be a little over seven and a quarter billion people. Now let's run the math using another starting point. Now, mankind, according to science, has been here for millions of years. But let's go super conservative and say mankind has been here for just one million years. And you double the population every 150 years. How many people do you think we have on earth today? A trillion? A quadrillion? A quintillion? Not even close. There would be so many people that that number of human bodies cannot be contained in the Milky Way galaxy. I didn't make that up. We're not off by a factor of a thousand, a million, a billion, or a trillion. We are off by a factor that is so great that if we could name that number, you, you wouldn't have any comprehension of it because it has so many zeros after it. That's what happens when you double things for a million years. Friends, 
humankind has not been on the planet for a million years. We've been here for a few thousand years. The population, the math just doesn't add up. By the way, secular geneticists have determined that over 99% of humans today trace their DNA from, this is what secular scientists are calling it, from one genetic Adam and Eve who lived within the last 25,000 years. Why is hardly anybody writing about this? Over 99% of our DNA comes from one human couple who lived in the last 25,000 years, and yet we've been around for millions of years? What happened to the rest of all these fools? We all came from one couple? That sounds incredibly biblical and incredibly young. Now, some of the things I'm going to throw out to you quickly are, are anecdotal, and some of them are really important. Here's an anecdotal one. The two oldest living things on the earth are the Great Barrier Reef, greatest, biggest reef on the earth off the coast of Australia. It's about 5,000 years old. Interesting number. The second oldest living thing on the earth is a bristlecone pine tree. They were able to measure the number of, count the number of rings. 4,300 years old. It's just really interesting. We don't have anything 50,000 years old on the planet. <coughs> Earth's magnetic fields are constantly decaying. For 140 years, we've been measuring the rate of their decay and seeing how that impacts life on the Earth. Well, everything in evolutionary theory and with the Big Bang insists that you trust that there was a uniformity in, in how things change. Carbon-14 is completely based on this. Well, if we use that same principle in observing what's going on in, our, in the, the belts around the Earth, we know that 25,000 years ago, life would be impossible on the planet. Life of any kind as we know it. Well, that's science. We, we can measure that backwards. Again, some technical details. I find these interesting. One of the things that we can measure, this is science because we can measure it. We have all kinds of stuff orbiting the earth outside of our atmosphere that can measure the amount of space dust just hurtling through the solar system. And when NASA was trying to plan its first mission to the moon, they were very concerned because based on measurements, they knew that as old as the moon was supposed to be, that there would be dozens of feet of nothing but just pure space dust. It's a measured thing. They knew how much it was. It was a huge dilemma. They were trying to figure out how to design a lunar lander that wouldn't just sink down into the marsh of, of just this incredible depth of space dust. And so they're trying to figure out how to make big enough feet on the legs of the lunar lander so that it wouldn't just disappear into the dust. And one of our scientists, an aerospace engineer by the name of Werner von Braun, if you ever lived in Huntsville, you know that name because he was in charge of the Marshall Space Flight Center for years. He was a former scientist for the Nazis in World War II who, when he was set free, came over and became one of our most important scientists in our uh, all of our space exploration design stuff. He helped to design the Saturn V rocket and all of that. Von Braun was a Christian. And he had done his own math based on a correct age for the Earth and for the Moon. And he told the other scientists at NASA, quit worrying about it. Here's how much dust we're going to find on the Moon. He gave them an exact calculation based on an age of 6,000 years. They sweated it until the thing landed on the Moon. Guess what they found? They found exactly what Werner von Braun said they would find. They found the amount of dust that correlated to a 6,000-year-old moon. When's the last time you read that in a science textbook? More currently, we sent a space probe out in 1997, the Cassini-Huygens probe to Saturn. You remember that one? 
it's, it's, you don't have to remember it from 97 because it arrived on station in 03 or 04. It's been there for 13 or 14 years orbiting and doing its stuff. It, the, the Hagen's part of the probe actually landed on Titan, the moon, and it's the first time we've ever landed on something other than our moon. But the Cassini portion of the probe, actually in 2017, uh, when it was completely spent, it lasted way more years than it was supposed to, it was studying the rings of Saturn because, I mean, we can't explain the rings of Saturn. By the way, th- this is one of those things where God just said, I think I'll just flex my muscle. And I mean, we found out things about the rings that nobody can explain. Like there are spokes connecting rings that there's nothing in science that would explain that. We found braided rings around Saturn. What explains braided rings other than an intelligent designer? But that's not even what I'm, the point I'm making. Cassini was able to, to press into right up to the, the rings, and there were, again, just like for the surface of the moon, there were very specific predictions as to the amount of space dust that had collected in those rings because they've had billions of years to be doing this. What they found didn't make any sense because the amount of space dust collected in those rings would reflect a planet that's only thousands of years old, not millions or billions of years old. And another thing, we know that the outer five planets of our solar system, they're gaseous planets, and yet they have a tremendous gravitational pull, a gravitational pull that would only be as strong as it is if they were extremely young planets. They cannot be... They can't be millions or billions of years old. And scientists have just had to kind of write this off and say, well, there must be some kind of dynamo system that we cannot explain inside that's sort of recreating the the gravitational force in them. Well, Cassini, on its final mission as it plunged to its death into Saturn, discovered that there is no dynamo system in place inside of Saturn. You can't explain the gravitational force of the planet other than to say that it's really young. Sasha Kempf a space physicist in a science journal report said this in relation to what they discovered by the things I just described. We are back to square one. Science can't explain this. It's supposed to be so old, and yet it can't be. We're back to square one. It's not a Christian writer. That's a secular physicist. There's so many other evidences. You know, The Sahara Desert grows at four miles a year. By using the math there, it's about 4,000 years old. Niagara Falls, the gorge, is moving every year. If it were just 1 million years old, it already would be in Lake Erie. Major river deltas, we measure the amount of silt that's pushed into a delta every year. The Mississippi is a great example of that. We know how old the Mississippi River is. It's a little under 5,000 years old. Why is that not in our textbooks? The salinity of our oceans... We know exactly how salty they are. The, the oceans have uh, 3.6% dissolved minerals in them, most of it's sodium. What you may not realize is they're getting saltier every year. Every year, we measure this, 457 million tons of minerals are added to the oceans, and 122 million tons are lost, with a net gain of 335 million tons of dissolved minerals being poured into the oceans. If you use the backward math to figure out how much minerals we have today and how old they are, you come up with about four and a half thousand years that the oceans have been there. That apparently there was some major event causing the oceans to be what they are about four and a half thousand years ago. Anybody remember anything from four and a half thousand years ago? I'm going to stop there, and I know I'm, I'm about out of time here. There are plenty of relevant questions. Now, without apology... I've been giving one side of the argument. 
And I will be the first to acknowledge there are a number of evidences that if you looked at them alone, and particularly with certain parameters attached to them, would lead you to other conclusions. They lead you to an old age for the earth, an old age for the universe. One of those questions, one of those issues is, what about carbon-14 dating? Because we, we, don't we know that we've got all these things on earth that are you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of years old? Really, really quick lesson and a couple of thoughts on that. First of all, carbon-14 dating has been demonstrated time and again when we have samples that we know exactly the age of it. I mean, where we literally observed, this is when this was created, now date it. But you don't tell the scientist. We found again and again, you can't accurately date things. Carbon-14 dating, fast, fast lesson on this. Our atmosphere is made up 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen. The nitrogen-14, that's normal nitrogen, at the outer edges of our atmosphere is bombarded with cosmic radiation. It causes a certain portion of that to shift from being nitrogen-14 to being carbon-14 because it now has more neutrons and it's got one less proton. And so now it is a, a, um, a radioisotope of what carbon is normally carbon-12. Stable carbon is carbon-12. Nitrogen-14 converted to carbon is now carbon-14. The thing that it will naturally bond with as that isotope is oxygen because there's lots of oxygen along with the nitrogen out there and it forms CO2, carbon dioxide. But carbon-14 carbon dioxide is heavier than carbon-12 CO2 and so it sinks to the surface of the earth and we all ingest it. The plants take it in, it gets rained down, so every plant's got a little bit of carbon-14 in it, and every living thing that ever eats anything, it's got everything on earth's got carbon-14 in it. It is a radioisotope of normal carbon-12. Carbon-14 has a, a very specific shelf life, 5,370 years. The, the half-life of a, of a radioisotope is the amount of time that it takes for one half of those atoms to convert to their normal stable state. So all that means is... If we had, if, if John over here had absorbed 1,000 carbon-14 molecules and he drops dead today, we know that in 5,370 years, if we're accurate, that he should have 500 molecules of carbon-14 left in him. The half-life, the amount of time that it takes for half of those to convert back to carbon-12. Does that make sense? You with me? Some of you looking like a calf at a new gate like that. Okay. So carbon-14 dating... We use a mass spectrometer to literally count how many carbon-14 atoms are left inside of John's body. And based on that number, we say John lived in this particular time frame because this is how many are there. There's a bunch of stuff that can go wrong with that. First of all, we have to begin with knowing what the number of carbon-14 atoms was that John ever took in. How can you ever accurately know what that number is? You can't. So the, the starting math is really wrong, as has been demonstrated again and again through, through tests where we know the age of the material. But here's the other major problem with carbon-14. You need to ask somebody about this. If the half-life of carbon-14 is 5,370 years, then stuff that's a million years old should be free of carbon-14. It's gone. There shouldn't be any left. It should have all converted to carbon-12. Guess what? We can't find anything on Earth that doesn't have carbon-14 in it. Whoa! Rewind that one. Everything we test has carbon-14 in it. It's only got a half-life of 5,370 years. If we've been here four and a half billion years, you should be testing stuff all over the planet that has no carbon-14 in it. It's in everything. Why? Because we hadn't been here but a few thousand years.
What about very old stars and light from distant stars? And I really am out of time. And this is actually an important issue. The question is, if there are stars that are so many light years away that it would take millions of years for the light to get to us, how is it that we can see them? And the overly simplistic answer is, okay, well, a, a, a creator God certainly can can bring the light, can put the light beams in place so that we see what's out there even though he had to create the beams that were made that never actually left the, plant, left the star to get here. It, it becomes a rather complex argument, but here's part of what you have to grasp. If earth is the center of God's creative energy, if mankind is the crowning work of all creation, we ought to let earth serve as something as a pattern for how God created the entire universe. And when God created the earth, did he make an earth, an earth that was just full of seeds and eggs and embryos and say, now let's just give it time and watch all these things develop? Or did God create an earth that was fully formed, that had mature plants and fruit-bearing trees and, and things of all ages and sizes? God created a planet that was in full swing. Is it safe to assume that God would create a universe that reflects that? He's going to show us what old and young-looking stars look like, what stars look like at all of these different stages where there are, there are a variety of different colors, and that he would create the light that would enable us to take that in. And, and some would see that and say, well, that would be deceptive. If God is showing us things, things that haven't even happened yet, that it's just how things would happen, is it any more deceptive than if I bring you a video of a volcanic eruption on some other part of the planet and it's, it's not actually happening in this moment and yet it's breathtaking, it's beautiful, it's powerful and I show it to you today to say, look, look at what's happening in, on this other continent right now. I'm giving you an opportunity to access what that looks like and to appreciate the great power even though you're not witnessing it in the moment. Is it any different that God would create a scenario where we can witness these things without having to wait three billion years to get to see them? And oh, by the way, lest we think that we're taking some dull-minded approach to explain a difficult question about light traveling across the universe, the Big Bang Theory has a gigantic problem with the speed of light traveling across the universe. That, And again, I know we don't have time to press into all of this, but the temperatures across the universe have evened out to a level that the Big Bang Theory cannot explain because it takes so long for light and energy to move across the universe. It absolutely could not have balanced out the way that it is. And Big Bang scientists cannot come up with a theory that would explain this because of the problem of, of light traveling across the universe. I'll stop there on that. It, it is an interesting subject. The most common question people ask is, what about the dinosaurs? Why doesn't the Bible talk about dinosaurs? What do Christians believe about dinosaurs? Well, first of all, the reason the Bible doesn't talk about dinosaurs is because the word was invented in 1841. But people have been talking about dinosaurs forever. They call them dragons most of the time. In ancient history, they referred to dinosaurs as dragons. The scriptures don't use the word, well, it does use the word dragon many times, but it more frequently uses the words Leviathan and Behemoth to describe giant reptilian creatures. And is there many times, I fully believe, that they were a part of creation. And we, we have fossilized footprints of a, of a human footprint in a, uh, a dinosaur footprint that they lived at the same time. I believe that the first 1,650 years of man's history, we were on the planet at the same time. It, if we took the time to go into it, there was room on the ark for young dinosaurs of every variety to be with Noah. He may have left them behind. I don't know. But post-flood, they apparently did not survive. Without a canopy effect, something changed. The dinosaurs died out. But dinosaurs are not a problem with accepting the Genesis 
explanation. Final two questions. Why should any of this matter to me? And the answer is actually fairly simple. Because what we believe about God's revelation of himself and his creation and about his word being true is absolutely under attack. And the one thing above everything else is the very foundational concept of God as the creator of the universe. Now, you don't have to believe everything as I just presented in order to believe that God created the universe, but you better know that we are under assault right now, that our children are being pushed in a direction that they are looked at as absolute ignoramuses if they believe that things happen the way that we read them in Genesis 1, and that's a problem. At the very least, if we have any intellectual integrity, we have to say it's at least very, very possible from what we observe in science and nature that it happened exactly as we read it in the Scriptures. Even if you're not a person of faith, if we just have intellectual integrity, we have to say there is at least as much, if not a great deal more, of science and stuff that we can observe that would point to a young age for the universe, a young age for the earth, and we're being told you're an idiot if you believe that stuff. We need for our kids to at least be armed with the knowledge that we're not a bunch of backwards hillbillies who just go la 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 anytime people start talking about science and what we observe. Pay attention. I, I read every article I can on this stuff and have for more years than I could count. I want to know all that I can. And here's what I found. I have yet to read a single article that leads me to the conclusion, oh, well, God can't exist or God can't have made it just as the Bible describes. Well, the final question that I put in the outline is, how did you come to your conclusions. How, how did I, as your pastor, come to these conclusions? Well, first of all, I come as a person of faith who accepts that the Scriptures are true from start to finish. I believe the maps. <laughs> I'm kidding. But I believe it from Genesis to, to the end. I believe it's all true. I believe it's as written. But I also believe that what we read gives an account of man and the earth being the center of God's creative activity. When it says in five words, and God created all the stars, it is a reminder to me that God is creating one order of being in his own image, and it is mankind, and that everything else revolves around that. And I am convinced that there is an intelligent being that is driving an argument for a system which makes us an an inconvenient coincidence, an inconvenient and destructive outcome to a 14 billion year evolutionary process. It completely devalues the scriptures and mankind. And we need to answer that. We need to answer that in a way that makes sense. But I'll tell you that part of my conclusion comes as a person of math and science. That I have tried to at times turn off what I believe and just say, give me the facts. Give me real data. Don't just give me theories. I want to know your theories, but I want to see the data behind it. And my conclusion, apart from being a person of faith, is that there's more evidence for what I just shared with you than there is for macroevolution and the Big Bang. At the end of the day, I know we're all going to agree. There is a creator God who made everything. But we don't have to be afraid of what science is going to reveal. The heavens declare the glory of God. The better we know the world around us, the more we realize there is a loving, powerful, wise God who made it all. And we live for his glory. Would you join me as we go to him in prayer? God, you are good and all of your ways are good. And the world does declare your goodness, your greatness.
And today we worship you. We bow and give you praise that you are the one who made us and who gives us life and meaning that that makes our existence count for anything. Lord, we choose to trust you. We come today a needy people and we pray for a fresh touch from you. And I pray for hearts today that just may be struggling and hurting, bodies that may be hurting and suffering, that today you would meet us at our point of need. You say in your word that you knit us together in our mother's wombs. You know everything about us. And you know how to meet our deepest needs. And I pray that today you would do just that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi. Thanks so much for taking time to tune in and listen to the message today through Freedom Online. Uh, we would love to, the opportunity to meet you personally anytime that you're in our area. But if today you heard something that really connected or that maybe you've got questions about, you'd like to talk with somebody or have someone pray with you, we'd love to hear back from you. You can reach us in a couple of different ways. You'll find on the website a contacts link. You can contact me or any member of our leadership directly. Or you can call us at the number that you see on the website or at the bottom of the screen now. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope that you have a great week.